1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, uh, and when and talked about several different things, I just want to briefly, if I can get my clicker to work, which is becoming a standard problem, um, look at this outline again of 1 Corinthians. We had, we had outlined and said, you know, you can kind of roughly split it into six different sections uh, of the book here, if you will. Uh, we are still in this first section right here uh, through today, which I've broadly titled Divisions. Um, divisions that were happening in the church at Corinth, uh, as we saw in Wednesday night's lesson. Um, now, just a brief review on that lesson. This is really small, so uh, let me read it out for you here. Chapter 1, uh, Paul addresses the Corinthian church as fellow Christians who are saved in Christ. And we said that's interesting because they have a lot of problems. They have a lot of issues within the congregation, but Paul still addresses them as Christians. He thanks God for them and for their spiritual gifts uh, and the grace that they had been given by God. Uh, the church at Corinth, we know, is experiencing division uh, within the congregation, uh, inside the church, over preferred teachers. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, uh, I'm of Christ. These, these different factions were forming within the church. And Paul actually said he was glad that he baptized only a few people himself. He was not saying, I'm glad that I left and I, only three people were baptized while I was there. He says, I'm glad that I only baptized a handful of people. That way no one can out there can really say, or hopefully very few could say, well, I'm special because I was baptized by Paul, the apostle, right? He wanted it to be, uh, it, it doesn't matter who baptizes. Uh, and, and really today what we're going to get into him saying is it doesn't matter who teaches, right? That's, that's really what he's going to get to. It doesn't matter who teaches. At the very end of chapter one, Paul compares worldly wisdom and the true wisdom of God, and he also reminds them of their humble place when God chose them and saved them, and it's kind of interesting, uh, it's almost, uh, I don't want to say uh, putting them down, but it's chapter 1, verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, in other words, you know, <laughs> You all weren't anything special to look at when you were saved, right? You were nothing special. You obviously weren't saved based on uh, being preferred uh, over anybody else. It reminds me a lot of, and I'm, I'm forgetting the Old Testament reference, but there was a point in the Old Testament where God tells Israel, do you think I saved you because you were more righteous than anybody else, because you were better than anybody else, that you were more godly than anybody else? No, I saved you because I chose you. Right? I chose you because I had grace on you and I loved you because you're my children, not because you were better than anybody else. And so, very similar thing that Paul says uh, to the church here. And then in chapter 2, Paul reminds the Corinthians that he didn't preach to them with oratory skill. And, and we talked briefly on Wednesday about how uh, you know, the, the, the church in Corinth, they would have been familiar with these orators, these guys that went around giving these speeches in ancient Rome. And this is who Paul, I mean, if you were on the docket, you know, Paul would go into these places and, and preach to scholars and learned people. Well, he would have been sandwiched between these orators, right? The orators would get up and, and give a speech on uh, public policy, uh, on, you know, just government decisions, this kind of thing. And so Paul says, that's not the way that I came and preached to you. I didn't try to convince you with how uh, eloquent of a speaker that I am. And that's because he didn't want their faith to be built on fancy preaching uh, or rhetoric, but on the gospel. Uh, now, Paul, he goes on to say, because he, he kind of does a lot of, you know, downplaying wisdom. He says, you know, wisdom as the Gentiles want it and wisdom as the world sees it is not anything special, right? 
But he actually goes on to say, well, we do teach wisdom to those who are mature, but I don't despise wisdom in general, just the worldly ideas of what wisdom is, right? There was a standard at the time of this is what makes you a smart person. There's a standard today, <laughs> this is what makes you a smart person. There's certain tables that, of conversation where the only way you can sit down at that table is you, if you meet this certain qualification of what a smart person is, right? Well, we could argue about whether that's really a good standard or not, right? I know a lot of people with PhDs that I wouldn't trust to tie my shoes, right? Because the, the standard of what wisdom is is not a correct standard. And what Paul goes on to say is that worldly wisdom can never comprehend the truth of God. Only the Holy Spirit can reveal God to us. And so that's, again, why, you know, as I think about, like, what John's been teaching on apologetics, and as he's mentioned, I think even in the last lesson, apologetics especially ones that look like at the world and at science and stuff like that, they hold our hand to take us to the point where we understand the Bible is true, the Bible is real. And once we're at that point, this is where we get our information about Jehovah God, right? We can't get it from looking at a tree out there. Looking at a tree can tell us there is a God, but only this book can tell us about Jehovah God uh, and, and reveal him to us. And at the very end of chapter 2, he talks about how there's two types of people you know, in, in the world, really. There's the natural person. Uh, and it, look in verse 14 of chapter 2. It says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, uh, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, there is a person who has not been influenced by the Word of God. You know, and we see these people out every day at work, at Walmart, at the gas station, around. These are people that are not at all influenced by the Word of God. And if you told them something from the Word of God, you just said, hey, here's this, it would mean nothing to them, right? Because they're, they're not on that wavelength. They're not spiritually discerned. That, their mind doesn't work on that. And, and Paul says that's the natural person, right? That's the, if you, if you set something going, you know, if you wind back the little car and let it go without adjusting the course, this is how people are, right? If, if God doesn't intervene, if God doesn't teach people through His Word, this is the course they go on. They're not spiritually discerned. It's not within themselves to do it. In verse 15, he says, The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. And that doesn't mean what it sounds like. It sounds like, well, if someone's a spiritual person, then they uh, are, get, a, get a ticket to suddenly be a judge of whatever they want, and nobody can judge them, right? You can't judge me. Only God can judge me. We know a lot of righteous people who say that all the time, don't we? Well, they don't, they're not righteous. These people that live however they want to and say, only God can judge me, not you. Well, what Paul's saying here is a spiritual person can look at the world based on what this book says and judge reality, right? Paul says worldly wisdom does not see reality, but spiritual wisdom from the Bible, it can see reality. So a spiritual person really can know what's going on in the world, right? Uh, now, as we were talking about a little bit before class, some things we don't really know what's going on. We look out and we go, well, are people, what, what agendas are at play? What are people trying to do in this world? What's really going on? But can a Christian worldview tell us, for instance, that there is evil in the world that is actively trying to hurt people? Yeah, you know, the, the Christian worldview says not only are there evil people, but there's actually spiritual evil, right? Satan. Like, we, you look at the world and you see all these bad things that have happened. You just go, I just don't understand how these bad things could have ever happened or this person go this far, and I go, well, we know that there are evil forces that actively are working towards evil, right? And so 
that a person with a spiritual mindset has a little bit of a foundation to build upon that idea versus a person that just says, well, people are just good or bad, just, you know, whatever. It just depends on how the person goes. So that's kind of part that we can judge things as a spiritual person. Um, and so he kind of makes this the separation between spiritual people and natural people. Now, again, like I said, some of this is really kind of hard to wrap our head around, but especially that last thing is, is important, talking about there are natural people and there are spiritual people. When we get into uh, the first part of chapter 3, which as you see, I put Christians of the flesh, which sounds like uh, uh, something that shouldn't be said or something that's wrong, but listen to what Paul says here. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, this is worthy of a breakdown right away. He's just said there are two kinds of people. There are spiritual people who base their understanding and knowledge off of what God's revealed. And there's natural people whose spiritual stuff just is right over their head, right? And he says, but you, but brothers, Christians, right? I could not address you as spiritual people, right? Now that, again, we've talked in chapter one where he said, you all are Christians, you're all this, but he said, but you're not spiritual people, right? You're not viewing things through this lens. He says, I don't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So is Paul saying, you're fleshly people, and because of that, you're obviously not Christians? No, he says, you are infants in Christ, right? You are in Christ, you're like babies, right? You're like babies in Christ. And because of that, you are people of the flesh or you are the natural people, right? You're the natural people. Uh, I didn't mean to go forward yet, but I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Let's look at, as he says on in verse two, I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Now, that can be kind of weird. Like, what are we supposed to be, Paul? Like aliens? Like, <laughs> Aren't you just acting like humans when you do that? Well, what he's saying is it goes back to what he was just talking about. You know, if a human is born and continues on the natural course without ever hearing the word of God, without ever being you know, exposed to that, then they will act just like a mere human, right? How does a human act? They're going to go on through their life and they're going to sin. Uh, they're going to, to do these things and they're going to live in this natural way. And he says, if you are jealous, if you have strife, if you have divisions among you, it's like you've never even read this book, right? I mentioned on Wednesday um, that, that I have a friend whose congregation right now is going through a lot of issues, like a lot of hard times, like church split, preacher firings, elder resignations, this kind of thing. And in talking with him about this, he said, we get so in the moment of these issues that seem so insurmountable, and it's like we did, didn't read this, right? We didn't read what it says about, you know, consider others more than yourself. Just look at what Jesus did for us, right? But we, when we detach ourselves from that and from the grace of God, and from the truth, then all of a sudden we're just acting like people in a, in a social club, right, or in a job. You, you, you've worked a job where it's just cutthroat and people are at each other's throats because, you know, it's got to be my way, I've got to be in charge. Paul says that's the way everybody acts. That's the way that is natural for people to act. If you act this way in the church, it's as if you're not changed at all. You're not spiritual people. You're not this way. And so I want to think about for a second, how is it possible that someone can be in Christ and still be 
of the flesh, right? A natural person. How can we be baptized? How can we do this and yet still be a, a not, not a spiritual person? Well, we've talked before about justification, and this is the, the first act, if you will, uh, of someone who, who is, you know, coming to know God, they're, they're learning the gospel, and in fact, even coming to obey it. But what I put here is you've got this line of Jesus's righteousness, and down here, you have our righteousness. Now, imagine if this TV could stretch all the way up to Mars and back. That's the distance between our righteousness and Jesus's righteousness. It's not a point on the scale that we can actually reach, okay? It is so far above us, it is nothing that we can attain to, the righteousness of Jesus, okay? He's perfect. None of us are. Uh, We would all agree on that. I would hope that none of us are perfect. But when we are baptized, after our baptism, and we are justified, all of a sudden we tap into this righteousness, right? And when God looks at us today, tomorrow, on the judgment day, he judges us not based on our righteousness, but on the righteousness of Jesus, right? The only way we will be saved on the judgment day is if God looks at us and sees the righteousness of Jesus, right? Let's say that I'm baptized I go to church every Sunday, I live my week as a Christian, and in the course of that, what am I going to do throughout the week? I'm going to sin, I'm, I'm going to sin, and I pray for God to forgive me and whatever else. But let's say I, I, through my life I steadily get better, and then on the day of judgment I say, well, God's going to judge me based on my righteousness. Guess where I'm going if he judges me based on my righteousness? To hell, right? My righteousness is not worthy of saving myself. If it was, then Jesus never would have had to die. The only way that we can be justified is if God looks at us based on Jesus's righteousness. And that's where, and I've talked about before in the judgment day, where for Christians, the judgment day will not be, have you done enough good things to make the cut? That will not be what judgment day looks like for Christians. The question for Christians on judgment day is, are you in Christ? Are you in Jesus's blood, right? Because if that's what you are, there's no judgment to be done, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, God will view you as Jesus when he judges you. That's justification. Now, sanctification is something a little bit different. And this is after we're baptized, okay? Before we're baptized, let me go back here. Before we're baptized, our righteousness is right here. We have no righteousness. We're baptized, and all of a sudden, God judges us based on Jesus' righteousness. But in reality, after we're baptized, God judges us based on Jesus' righteousness, but where's our righteousness really? It's still down here after we're baptized. I mean, we don't know anything. We're like babies. We're like infants. So again, we've talked before, it's it's like you cross the finish line first thing. If I'm baptized and I go out and get hit by a truck, Guess what reward I'm worthy of? Heaven, right? I get credit as if I was as righteous as Jesus on that last and final day. But in reality, my righteousness is still down here. And not only that, as I live my Christian life, how is the righteousness going to go? We're baptized, then we have a little bit of an uptick, right? Where, oh man, I'm on fire, I'm ready, and then what happens? Zoom, we go into a valley, right? And then we go up a little bit, and then we go down, and then we go up a little bit, and I, I did this, this is a kind version of the graph, right? Because sometimes we drop down below, sometimes even back where we were at the start. I mean, it's terrible what we do, right? This is the way that sanctification goes. So again, we have justification, we have after baptism, the righteousness of Jesus, but then on our sanctification, we're just going to have an up and down, up and down kind of experience as we go. This section right here is what I think Paul's referring to. When we're in Christ and yet 
we're still babes in Christ, right? It's, it's impossible to expect a person that's just baptized to think like God thinks, right? To see the world as God sees it. They can continue to be saved, um, but at a, at a time like this, they don't know a whole lot. Now, the problem with this is what? Calling somebody a baby. We love babies, right? Babies are awesome. If someone says a baby for 15 years, then we're going to start calling the doctor, right? Because there's something wrong. This child is not growing. They're not progressing. In fact, people don't stay a baby for 15 years. If something wrong happens, they just die, right? If something was going to be that extreme, you just die. And so there's a danger, as Paul looks at the church in Corinth, that instead of growing, they're continuing to stay in this stage, right? In Christ, yeah, you're saved, but you're on the course to death, right? Because you're not becoming spiritual people. You're not changing the way that you think um, based on the Bible, right? Paul says, uh, you know, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of what? Your mind, right? The Christian game is about changing the way that you think, uh, even though the world tells you one thing or another. And so, again, what's Paul talking about here? He says, hey, you have these divisions, and that proves to me that you're still down here. And that's very interesting, because a lot of times we judge Christian maturity on well, this person's willing to participate in the worship service, or this person's been in a lot of Bible classes and understands a lot of stuff about the Bible. But Paul's version of Christian maturity here is, you all can't do church together without having jealousy and striving divisions. You must still be babies, right? If you, so what if we use that standard of maturity, right? Actual, the way we love each other, the way we get along with each other, the way that we avoid division with each other. Paul says, that's what I use to judge Christian maturity. And if we use that judgment in our congregations, he might come and say, well, this whole congregation's a nursery, right? This whole congregation's full of babies because, you know, you all are, are continuing this division and these problems. And so he's going to go on here and talk about, you know, the problem that they're having is the, the division over teachers. And so in verse 5, he goes on to talk about this a little bit more in the role of ministers. Um, he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Now, what Paul's saying here is this. You're dividing over, well, I've got baptized, or I learned under Apollos. Well, I learned under Paul. Well, I'm better than you because... Paul taught me. Well, I'm better than you because Peter taught me. Paul said, what, is, who, what does it matter? Who, who, what, what does it matter if it's Apollos or if it's Paul? Because ultimately, and what I love in this passage, he says, who's really doing the heavy lifting? God's doing the heavy lifting, right? If I go and I preach a sermon to 5,000 people and 3,000 of them are baptized, and everybody goes, oh my goodness, Titus, what a great guy. Who gave me my material? Right? I mean, where's my material coming from? It's from God. If they were baptized and saved, who's saving them? God's saving them, right? He's the one that originates everything. And so what Paul views himself and Apollos as, he says, you know, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. In other words, I came and taught you all. I left. Apollos came and helped you grow up into that, what I taught you. But God's the one that gets the credit for the whole process, right? It can't be one of us. And so... You know, verse 7, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. I'll never forget 
sitting at a table at a gospel meeting I went to somewhere sometime, that's as much as I would say, and listening to a preacher talk about how much success that he had had. I did this gospel meeting and this many people responded and this many people were baptized. And it was just so obvious that he was so proud of himself for what he had done in these gospel meetings and how successful he had been. And even at whatever age I was, again, I'm given no other clues about what it was or who it was or where it was, but even at that age, it was so distasteful to me as I listened to it. I thought, this is not what it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be any kind of pride because, again, there can be no pride among ministers uh, or anyone because God is the one who provides the growth, right? God is the one who is giving the increase. And so Paul says, yes, those who work are going to get a reward. They're going to get wages for their labor. You know, uh, in other words, he's, he wouldn't say this. On one hand, you could say, well, a preacher's nothing. A preacher doesn't matter, right? Whether Titus teaches you and you obey the gospel, or Ronald teaches you and you obey the gospel, or John teaches you, the teacher doesn't matter, right? It's your relationship to God that matters. So you could say, well, if a preacher's anything, let's just kick these preachers down and start you know, throwing mud on them or something. But Paul says there is a reward and wage for being a teacher, right? I mean, a teacher, they do a great work and God sees their work, right? It's not as if he's saying, well, teachers, nothing, you know, just, just pretend they don't exist. But at the same time, God is the one who is pulling uh, his weight here. And it says in verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. And so he's saying, you know, you, you're our project and we're co-workers with God, but the one who's really farming you and really building you up is God himself, right? And we're just his uh, underlings, if you will. So he goes on, as he, he's, this can kind of be tricky to follow, but he's talking about in this next section, the wages or the reward of ministers, right? So in verse 10, he says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Now, it's interesting, Paul, just before this, he's been all farming references, right? I planted, Apollos watered. And then in that verse 9, he said, you are God's field, God's building. And now he's going to shift, right? He goes from farming to building. Now that's what he's looking at and thinking about. Um, and so he says, you know, I laid a foundation with you all, right? When I came and taught you, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it, right? And that's the way that church work goes. If you open up our directory and you see every preacher that is preached at Center Grove, right? You think that all those men had like a vision of what they wanted this congregation to be, where they wanted this congregation to go, how they wanted it to grow. But guess what happened to those men? They left or they died, right? You don't get to see the project as it continues to go, you know, I, uh, I love the story in our, our directory of how uh, Robardus Burroughs, which I assume was Rellin's great great grandpa, they said, you know, who, what are we going to name it? And they were in the middle of a grove of trees, and they said, we shall call it Center Grove, for we're in the center of a grove of trees. Do you think Robardus, or whatever his name is, had any idea what we would be today? They, they didn't get to live to see this happen, right? And so Paul says, I laid a foundation, and other people are building on it, so be careful what you build, right? Everybody pay attention to what you're building because this is kind of like if 17 people built a house together, right? What can start to happen? There can be some structural issues that go on when this happens. So look what he says in verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In other words, if it is a church, then we all start with the same foundation, right? If it is a true church, then Jesus is the bedrock. So 
we know that's good, right? The chief cornerstone, nothing wrong with him. If you're building on Jesus, you're building right. But note what he says here. Now, this is, this is some of the most difficult passages, I think, in the New Testament to fully understand. He says, now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so what Paul is saying here is he says, each one or anyone that builds on this foundation of the church, some might build with um, you know, straw, some might build with uh, gold, some might build with uh, hay, you know, uh, what do you say, hay, wood, some might build with silver and precious stones. So people are building on this foundation of the church. He's talking about ministers, right? Ministers, preachers, they are building this up as they go. Well, you know, we talk about in the Bible that people who are teachers, people who are preachers, what's, how are they judged? More strictly, right? They're judged more strictly based on what they did. But the fact of the matter is this, even away from that, is it possible for someone to minister and preach to a congregation, say, for 20 years, and there not be a lot of change that happens at that congregation? Yeah. In fact, they can do exactly what they're supposed to do, and not a lot of good can happen at that congregation, because whose hands is it in? And a lot, big ways the congregation, right? Uh, you, you can go to a place and you can preach the word of God and God can bless you. You can do all these things. But if the people are natural minded and not spiritually minded, you can do 20 years of work that looks like a bunch of hay and straw and wood duct taped together, right? And the question is, well, this person's job in the church is to build up the church and build it up. They've spent 20 years doing this. And what do we have to show for it? Nothing. Right? Well, the question is, does God look at that person and say, well, you preached the right thing, you did the right thing, but guess what? Because you didn't have any success, you're going to be condemned for that. No, that's not it. Right? That's not it. But rather, there are people that have very successful ministries building up. I mean, if a person comes into a church and does, they're, they're bringing people in, they have a successful ministry, God sees that and recognizes it, right? But at the same time, God's not going to condemn and, and send somebody to a fiery hell just because even though they did their best, they preached the word of God, they had a spiritually carnally minded congregation that didn't want to change, right? Because at some point, you, you see this, you get into a rut, people end up this way, and so... That's why, and it's challenging to see, you know, in verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, right? That's weird. You know, well, how can somebody be saved and yet they're still suffering some kind of fiery loss? Well, I think that's what he's talking about, right? There are people that what they build up uh, and what they try to do, it ultimately comes to naught, right? But they are still going to be saved. They will be saved, right? This goes back to, for ministers and workers of God, right? This person might have a very successful work, and they'll God will see that, right? This person may have a very negative uh, work or a work that, despite their best efforts, never comes together. But both will be saved, right? But they'll, there's a difference in how the ministry works out. And I think this goes back to saying, whether it's Apollos or whether it's Paul, that doesn't ultimately matter, right? So, a lot. Because each person is going to be judged on themselves and not just on, um, you know, on the work that they do as far as their ultimate salvation. That, that, that's a very difficult passage, but that's as, kind of as best as I can explain it there. Um, let's see here. This stuff is just dying left and right.
What happened? Oh, no. Oh, no. Is it is it the box down there? It's replacing backup and sync. Why? All right. Is it going to work now? Yeah, it works now. All right. So the next section here, he talks about the danger of pride in the church, if you will. And it, it matches what he talks about earlier here because... Look at what he says in verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So what he's done here really, and it's kind of hard to realize at first, is he's listed three types of workers or ministers or people in relation to the church. Earlier he said there's these people that build up on the foundation of Jesus and they build it up with precious stones and gold and silver. That's somebody that comes into a church and their work is actively helping the church, right? But you also have people that come in, the second person that builds up, builds up, and it ultimately comes to naught, right? It's it's still built on the foundation of Jesus, but because of the people, whatever it is, it's not going to endure and last. But here he's talking about a third person that says in verse 17, if anyone destroys the temple of God, right? Now we're not talking about somebody that's building. We're talking about somebody that comes to what's been built and starts doing what? Taking it apart, right? And he says, that person, because we've just said these first two people can both be saved, right? Even the second one, even though his work is, is burned up, he'll be saved as through fire. But verse 17, he says, if anyone destroys the temple of God, what will happen? God will destroy him, right? And so three types of people, a successful builder, a not so successful builder, and now a destroyer, right? Someone who destroys the building of God. And there are people. Right? There are people that have spent their time destroying God's temple, dividing churches, right? breaking churches down, destroying people's work. And, and Paul says God's going to destroy that person. Right? No coming through fire. They are going to be destroyed. That's the judgment on them because, again, it's so important, the danger of dealing with the holiness of God. This keeps skipping forward without me wanting it to, but, but you might be wondering what this is. Um, Nadab and Abihu. So Nadab and Abihu, when they took strange fire before God, what happened? They got burnt, right? They got burnt up. Well, what about when Uzzah, in this very grainy picture here, when Uzzah touches the Ark of the Covenant, right? He had great intentions, but what happens? God strikes him dead because there's, it's dangerous to play around with holy stuff, right? Well, Paul says, guess what today? The church is holy, right? And sometimes we don't feel like it because we know all of our problems and everybody else's problems. When we go over there, everybody looks normal, right? They don't seem holy. But Paul says it is holy and it is dangerous to play around with fire, right? And trying to hurt the church or divide the church or do these things. And so in verse 18, he says, uh, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. This is going back to what he talked about in chapter two, right? You think you're wise. You think you have this worldly wisdom among you, right? You all, part of the problem is some of you think you're smarter than everybody else. He says, if anybody thinks he's smart, let him become a fool, right? Let him become a fool, uh, that he might become wise, right? Spiritually wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Uh, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or excuse me, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. And so he's saying, you know, why are you defiling the holy? Why are you, you know, why would somebody even want to destroy this? Because the reality is pride is useless to begin with, for all things are yours, right? And here's what he means by that. If you are a Christian, 
in the church, you are an inheritor of the greatest blessings that God has to offer. You will live forever with God and Jesus in eternity. That's the reality. And even now, you are more blessed than anybody because you have access to God through prayer, all these things. So why are you fighting over the wallpaper color? Or a teacher? Or who's best? Or what time services start? Or a fellowship hall? Or a building project? Or, or you know, all of these things. All things are yours, right? You're already richer than anybody else. You know, and it ultimately comes down to because you are Christ and Christ is God's, right? You are already in the chain of blessing beyond what you can imagine and hope. So why are you fighting over stupid stuff, right? You're just being silly. You're being natural. You're being childish. These are the ideas here. And so, again, it all goes back to, again, why are you dividing? Because that's what we're in, this division part, right? You're dividing over teachers. You're dividing because some of you think you're smarter than each other. Humble yourselves, Realize the holiness of the church that you're in and how, how blessed you are and how everything is yours and, and, and stop it. Right? Stop dividing over stupid stuff. Just grow up, if you will, because you said you know, you're these infants. Grow up. Become mature Christians. Now, as we go into chapter 4 really quickly, we're, we're talking about God being the ultimate judge as we've talked about you know, the, the, the work of ministers being tested and judged by God. It says in verse, uh, verse 1, this is how one should regard us, ministers or apostles, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In other words, don't think of us as your leader, right? Your, uh, my leader's Paul, my leader's Apollos. No, he says, just think of us as servants, right, or slaves. Think of us as slaves to Jesus and stewards of the gospel, the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. And what, what Paul is saying here is this. I, as a steward, I have to be faithful, right? God expects me to be a faithful steward of his word. I can't preach a false word. I can't preach the wrong thing. I have to be faithful, but he says, but you're not the one that gets to decide if I'm faithful or not. And in fact, he says, I'm not even the one that decides whether or not I've been faithful. I don't even judge myself, right? Because I'm not a good judge of whether or not I'm right, okay? Or whether or not I'm what God wants me to be. Note what he says here as we go on. He says, for I am not aware of anything against myself. In other words, when I look on my ministry, to the best of my knowledge, I do not know of anything that I've said that's out of the way. I do not know of anything that I've done wrong. And I mean, that may, may sound like he's bragging, but I think he's just being honest. If I look at my ministry and I'm really being difficult on myself, I don't see where I've disqualified myself from preaching, right? Or I've done something wrong. But note what he says, but I am not thereby acquitted. And otherwise, just because I can't see anything wrong with me does not acquit me. Right? That doesn't mean I'm all good just because I judge myself to be righteous. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. Right? In other words, as a minister or even as a Christian, we don't judge each other. Right? We don't judge in, insofar as we don't call the ultimate judgment on, hey, you're ultimately faithful. Right? That's God's call. That's God's judgment. We shouldn't judge. I can't look. Now, again, there's layers to this, right? If I go out and see one of you, you know, hanging out, you know, sinning, all kinds of ways you could do that, right? Then I'm, as a Christian, able to go, hey, I need to rebuke that brother and tell them that they need to get back into walking in the light of Christ, right? But 
we're talking about within the church, right? Everybody is doing supposedly what they're supposed to be doing. We're here all together. I don't get to stand up here and say, I think you're faithful, but I don't think that you're making the cut back there, right? God makes that decision. We can't even look at ourselves and ultimately make that judgment, right? Because God is the one that ultimately makes that decision. And he says there in verse 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. Not his condemnation. Uh, his commendation. Um, it all goes back to don't fight over why well, I'm doing more for God, why well, I'm the most faithful, and that means I have a bigger say in the congregation. Unity means realizing God's going to be the one that judges us all. I'm not going to split hairs over my brothers and sisters working alongside me, right? I'm not talking about the people that are never here. I'm not talking about the people that you go on their Facebook and go, oh my goodness, they're at church on Sunday, but they're saying, I'm talking about the people that we're fellow workers with. It's not my business to look at people and start judging. Well, I think they're one of the good ones and they're not that great, right? God ultimately is the one that will decide and we don't need to worry about it until then. Now, uh, he says here in verse 6, I have applied all of these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Uh, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Um, I actually put, I think, the wrong scriptures up here for this verse. I, I skipped the section in this heading. But what, in other words, he says here is he says, I've looked, you know, as we've gone through these first four chapters, because he's saying, think back to what I've said. We've done a detailed case study on me and Apollos, right? He says, we've looked at us. We've talked about me, plant, and Apollos watering. He says, I've done this so that for your benefit, so that you can learn not to be puffed up, right? You need to see that no one's better than anybody else against one another, Um and he says in verse 7, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? In other words, you all are acting like you've come up with some gospel truth on your own or you got this because you were so good to deserve it, right? Anything that you've received, you've gotten from somebody else, right? Why are you puffed up against each other? Every single one of you is helpless unless you had received what we had given you as we preached to you. Now, this is already you've become kings is this next section, and this is one of the scariest passages to me in 1 Corinthians. Listen to Paul's sarcasm here. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. In other words, what he's saying is, I look across the water over at Corinth, and it looks like you all are doing really well, right? You've got a lot of money. You're sitting in the high seat. You're doing all right, right? You've already become kings. And then he says, uh, you know, uh, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you, we being the ministers, the apostles. He says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, the angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but you, uh, we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat, we have become and still uh, and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, let's use our brains here a little bit. Paul says, I'm going to look at the church at Corinth. You all are Christians, but you live like kings, right? You have all the money, you have all the nice stuff. Seems, things seem to be okay right now. Look across the way at the apostles, right? What do they look like? Prisoners. They're poor. They're hungry. They wear rags. They're persecuted. 
worldly wisdom, we look at those two groups and say, well, who's doing what God wants them to do? It must be the church at Corinth because God's really blessing them, right? They are blessing all people. Oh, you know, praise Jesus. They are blessed and they live like kings. But Paul says, if we look at the two groups here, which one's actually doing what God wants them to do? It's the apostles, right? And because of that, they're getting treated how? Like slaves, like prisoners. They're hungry. And, and the reason it scares me is because I look at my life and sometimes I live like a king, right? I live like a king, in my life, I don't live like a slave. Well, what does Jesus say? You know, and as he lifted up his eyes on the disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. There's kind of a dividing line set up there, right? Between the blessed people that experience all these this sadness and this suffering for the kingdom, and the people on the other side, Right? Because these people on the side of being sad and poor and hungry now, uh, they're going to be satisfied. They're going to have the kingdom. Uh, you, they're going to laugh, and they are going to be blessed. Right now, again, what's Titus saying? It's not a sin to have money. It's not a sin to have nice things. It's not a sin to be an American. It's not a sin to be blessed, right? It's not a sin. But we should look at ourselves, how we live, and, and how sometimes we live as kings, and look at what Paul says. I wish we could live like kings, Right? I wish I could live like a king if I wasn't doing what Jesus asked me to do, but because I am, I'm having to live like this, right? So again, it's just a moment for self-reflection. How do we live, right? Now again, Paul was saying these things about, I wish that you were kings, right? I wish that I could be a king with you, but look what he, what he says after in verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. In other words, having read what you just read, you should be ashamed of yourselves, right? What I just said is, you should be ashamed because you're living like kings and not suffering uh, for Christ as we are. And in fact, you're going behind us and saying, well, look at the apostles. They must be wrong or they must be terrible because look at how God's not blessing them. He's blessing us. He says that's wrong and you should be ashamed for thinking about, but I don't say these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. In other words, you got a lot of teachers, but only one person first taught you, right? Uh, I, I was there first and I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. In other words, when he says that, he's specifically thinking about this context, right? What I just said, what does imitating Paul look like? Being hungry, being poor, suffering for Christ's sake, being put in prison, being a slave. Imitate me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out the talk of these arrogant Find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? I think I would have wanted the second one. <laughs>